Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Robert Cahaley. He's the chief pollster at the Trafalgar Group. That is a polling outfit that has been really exceptional the past few cycles. They have been far better than any of their competitors as far as the accuracy of their policy and political forecasting. So we want to bring on Robert to get his prognosis on a lot of these closely contested Senate races and the outlook for the U.S. House and U.S. Senate more broadly. But before then, the the issue over the past week that is generating the most headlines is the awesome, and yes, I say awesome move by the awesome, and again, I say awesome, governor of my state, Ron DeSantis of Florida, in shipping 50 migrants to that bastion of elite liberalism and out-of-touch progressivism, the island of Martha's Vineyard. So in case you're under a rock, Governor DeSantis shipped 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard, which is an iconic liberal enclave. Barack Obama has a sprawling 10-bedroom house there. The rich and famous are known to kind of play there. And these migrants happened to be there for only 24 to 36 hours before they were escorted. They were deported, actually. They were deported to the mainland across the water in Cape Cod. They needed 125 National Guardsmen, so two and a half times number of migrants just to kind of ship them across the waterway. Really incredible. And that is the entire point. Showing how much attention is needed to actually deal with this illegal alien invasion is the, is half the entire point of this really, really, really awesome move that DeSantis pulled. Similarly, the moves that Greg Abbott has pulled in kind of shipping hundreds of buses up to liberal cities like Chicago, New York, and D.C. in recent months. The idea here is to show these out-of-touch liberal elites, these people who are clamoring, who are chomping at the bit for sanctuary city jurisdictions to make them feel the pain of what folks down in Del Rio, Texas, El Paso, Texas, Yuma, Arizona, what they are feeling on a day-to-day basis as this country is under siege from the Western Hemisphere's worst criminal outfits, the transnational cartels that control large swaths of the Mexican border. So that is the point. You know, the people here that are seeing that this is just a stunt, it is just for PR, it's just for DeSantis's Florida gubernatorial re-election campaign, it's just for his possible future presidential ambitions. No, no, that's not the point here. Because red state governors, whether it's Abbott in Texas, DeSantis in Florida, Doug Ducey in Arizona, and of course there are other examples, for, for months and months, they have been telling the Biden administration that they cannot control what is happening and they do not have the resources to deal with this wide, wide open border with the migrants who are flooding in by the day across the across the the Rio Grande in Texas, across the high Sonora Desert in Arizona. And the federal government has to get in there. So that is the point here. And by the way, one other thing that's worth pointing out here, and I, you know, Governor Santis apparently has $12 million in the budget to 
do this kind of shipping, this this flying or busing off of migrants. Uh, let's see where he goes next. I mean, you know, it, it, now that we've done Martha's Vineyard, I think a lot of people that I've seen are saying, let's go to Wilmington, Delaware next. You know who's from Wilmington, Delaware, right? Obviously, that would be the doddering dolt from Delaware himself, President Joe Biden. So let's ship him to Wilmington. There is no reason whatsoever why red states with governors and state leadership who want to actually control the flow of immigration and staunch the bleeding, there is no sane world why they and their taxpayers should have to deal with dealing with this remarkable invasion as opposed to the liberals in Martha's Vineyard, Washington State, Chicago, Seattle, whatever, San Francisco, you get the idea here. Another interesting thing that I want to flag my friend Ann Coulter, a previous guest on this uh, on this podcast, she had a, a a great find. It was a great find by Ann on her Substack. She pulled this article from when Mike Bloomberg was the mayor of New York City. Uh, the article is from roughly two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or so. And in, in this article, Michael Bloomberg is shipping New York City homeless people down here to Miami, Florida. So you know. <laughs> What's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? I mean, it's not like Ron DeSantis created this playbook. It's not like he just whipped this out of nowhere. Michael Bloomberg, for goodness sake, did this 13 years ago now. But again, for those of you who are not paying attention to what's been happening at our southern border over the course of the Biden administration, and as bad as it is, you'd be forgiven for that because there is so much else going on in the world. The bipartisan ruling class is trying to get us involved in further war in Crimea and the Donbass and eastern Ukraine. There's all this crap going on with China, obviously, as there always is. There's kind of the winding down of the biomedical security state and COVID hysteria. So for those of you who understandably are paying less attention to what is happening at the southern border, I would strongly encourage you to start paying attention because it's really bad. The sheer number of migrants who are illegally crossing every day dwarfs, absolutely dwarfs anything that we have seen in recent memory. It blows out of the water anything that happened during the Trump presidency. It blows out of the water anything that happened during the Obama presidency. And it is profoundly unfair and unjust that these out-of-touch liberal elites can clamor for sanctuary city open borders policies to incentivize the transnational criminal cartels to do their dirty deeds and human traffic and drug traffic without paying the consequences. It's total BS. So good for Governor Ron DeSantis for making them feel their pain. We'll take it to a quick commercial break. We'll be joined shortly by Robert Cahali. Stay with us. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So as previously mentioned, we are just delighted to be joined this week by Robert Cahaley. He is the chief pollster at the Trafalgar Group. Robert, thanks so much for joining us this week. Oh, it's great to be here. So let's start with the Trafalgar Group. So for those who are kind of less in the weeds and kind of less obsessed with the polls than some of us are, who are you? When did you, when did you get started? Where are you based? Kind of just tell us a little bit about the, Traf the Trafalgar Group. We were a con political consulting firm mainly 
And we were just unhappy with the polling that we were getting. We finally just said, hey, we can do this better. So in uh, 2008, we just had a little time before the election cycle got going, and we scraped together some ideas about some, I, I'd spent some time watching some other guys who do this, and I, I sought a little bit of advice and remembered some of the things I picked up watching some people. Um, and so we just kind of just built it out from scratch ourselves. As a matter of fact, until 2017, even after the 2016 election, when we were um, kind of got national attention by predicting the uh, states that Trump would win and uh, predicting his electoral college margin, uh, we were using the same spreadsheet we built um, in 2008 until 2017. We didn't know there was such a thing as polling software. <laughs> we had literally <laughs> built out what we done, what we did on this just our amazingly intricate spreadsheet that did all the work for you and uh, very cumbersome. But um, yeah, it was it was came about the exact opposite way of a lot of people. I didn't, you know, there people come at polling because they really love statistics and 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 math and getting into that and then there are people who come at it because they think that some people are too stuck in a rigid system of how to conduct a poll irrespective of how people's lives have changed the job of any guided person in politics is to kind of understand the electorate and what i saw was an electorate that is no longer uh, mom and pop sitting around and waiting on the telephone to ring in the parlor and engaging in long conversations because they have nothing better to do. Right. And yet the polling industry was still acting very much like that's the way you poll people. So just to clarify the date, so you hop, you guys found that after the 2008 cycle, is that, is that what you said? We added polling as a small part of what our greater operation was. Got it. it would be less than 5% of our business in 2008. 2016, we figured out pretty early in the primaries that we'd built a better mousetrap. We knew by 2010. Right. Uh, I, I grew up doing a lot of politics in South Carolina, and we had some of just, we were wearing out people with much more experience in the statewide races in South Carolina in, in 2010. And I'm like, guys, this thing that we've worked out in other states is working out here too on a statewide level. This, this is right. And so we kind of gambled it all. Uh, on 2016 in the fall. And, you know, at that point, certainly we didn't have any clients paying for polling. So we just said, we made an investment. We made an investment decision to take our own money, pay to put a bunch of public polls out there for business development, thinking if we were right, success would follow. And if we were wrong, we'd do something else. You know, that was that was kind of the thing I said. Everybody kept catching me the hedge the week before the election. I'm like, hey, Come Wednesday, I'm, I'm going to be the guy who got it right or nobody's going to listen. So I definitely want to spend some time on talking about the systemic rot, intellectual blindfolders, whatever we, we want to call it in the polling industry. But let's let's drill down for a second on the 2016 election, because, you know, 2016 is when I graduated law school is when I was first starting to pay closer attention to some of what was happening in the political polling industry with everything that was happening in that particular election cycle. And at least to me, that is when your organization, Trafalgar Group, really emerged, because as you've already said, I mean, you were really basically the one group, <laughs> the one group out there. All this money goes in the polling industry and you guys got it right. So wh what did you see in the 2016 election that led you to correctly predict 
Trump's victory over Hil- over Hillary Clinton that no other polling outfit actually got? I had the benefit of growing up, like I said, doing a lot of politics in South Carolina. And when you do that, you get to experience a lot of different stuff. You get kind of first run at a lot of presidential campaign, a lot of presidential talent. But I also got to watch uh, Senator Jesse Helms' races year after year. And I noticed this anomaly of that people in North Carolina would always joke, if Jesse's only down by four, he's going to win. Because there's people who just ain't going to tell you that they're going to vote for Jesse who will. And so I didn't know what that was called at the time. That's called the social desirability bias. And some people refer to it as the Bradley effect that goes back to um, Tom Bradley running against Duke Majin in California, where people overstate the support for one candidate that will make them make the person being polled look best in the eyes of the person asking the question and they don't give them their true feelings. So what we noticed is with the different methods we were using uh, early on uh, with automated and live calls, what we noticed was the automated and the primaries were more accurate than the live every single time. And Trump always went up. And I'm like, I bet you this whole hidden vote thing is there. I bet this is what's going on. We decided to employ some of the mechanisms I'd learned. I learned a lot from a great guy who's passed on named Rod Sheely. He was a contemporary of Lee Atwater in South Carolina. And he always used to say, you got to give, sometimes you got to give people a polite way to tell you something they think is impolite. And one of the mechanisms he used is he would say, well, you know, you ask him a particular question. You say, now, I understand that's what you think. What, what do you think most of your neighbors think? And so we started using that in the fall. We started asking the neighbor question. And we started realizing there was, and this is my thing, is pattern recognition. I mean, I, I love patterns. That's, that's, that, that's my nerd. That's what I nerd out on numbers, patterns. And it was exactly the same. Hillary Clinton never went up. Trump never went down. Wow. Hillary's numbers always went down when you asked the neighbor, and Trump numbers always went up. And in some states, it was a big difference. And what we came to understand as we kind of worked through it was the higher that difference, the more hidden vote there was. And it helped us to then frame things a little better. And and there's some other techniques, and frankly, a lot of them, We've seen people copy, so we don't tell everybody a lot. Uh, there's ways that our people are trained to make a live call that I don't think anybody else trains their callers to do. Um, and there are just little things you can do to give people a little more comfort level. And they're a little more honest when they have a comfort level. And so we started recognizing, all right, we've got a significant hidden vote here. This is the real thing. And... It, it makes sense because everybody knew somebody who out there who was for Trump who maybe didn't want to tell their spouse they were for Trump, or maybe they didn't want to hear it from their uncle. Maybe they didn't want to hear it at work and then put in a sticker on their car. I, I always joke that I knew people who got paid for the Trump campaign and lived in neighborhoods that they couldn't have a sign or a sticker on their car. Wow. And I'm like, these people get paid and can't do it. So of course this exists. So yeah, that was, that was part of it is recognizing first that there was that 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 what we call a shy Trump vote and, and ways to detect it. And we figured out ways to detect it that others just didn't see. Uh, 
And then, yeah, there'll be people who tell you it doesn't exist, it never existed. But again, it defies logic to think that something we all experienced isn't possible in polling. I mean, it, it, it so often they'll, you know, there's some of these, you know, polling gurus are so sacrosanct in what they think of this science that they'll just say, well, what no one would ever lie to a pollster. Well, tell me, people lie to their priest, they lie to their doctor, they lie to their accountant, and they, suddenly they're all honest day with the pollster. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Of course they lie. Yeah, they no, lie that, that, that's actually a really funny analogy when you kind of compare it to lying to a, to a priest or an accountant or a doctor or anyone like that. But I, one thing that I want the listeners of the show to understand here is 2016 was, was not a blip in the radar. I mean, Trafalgar Group continued to much more yeah, accurately. Absolutely. Right. So in 2018 and 2020, I mean. By 2018, we were especially after the all these big groups that they had adjusted and they could now deal with hidden vote, there weren't a lot of hidden votes in 2018. But let me tell you where there was a hidden vote. In Florida. In Florida, if right. you remember how they just wrote DeSantis off, going to lose by five points, there was a hidden vote for DeSantis. But there was not a hidden vote. Andrew Gillum. There was a hidden vote in that race, but there was not a hidden vote in the Nelson-Scott race. Oh, I see. It, what people said was almost exactly what they were doing. But with Gillum people felt like it'd be better to say they were for him and they wouldn't risk being judged harshly by the first national question. So we not only predicted that the Senate would win, and we're the only ones who predicted that in the whole country, we predicted he would win by a bigger margin than Scott would defeat Nelson, which also happened. Right. That's the amazing. That, that's actually an amazing statistic. I mean, I live here in Florida, so I, I see, you know, well, I, I moved here admittedly after 2018. But, you know, DeSantis beat Gillum by what, roughly 30,000 votes in 2018. I mean, Rick Scott won his U.S. Senate statewide race that year by like 11,000 votes. <laughs> I mean, yes, really, really just crazy stuff. But uh, br- br- briefly, just then tell us about, about the 2020 cycle. I, I'm trying to remember, were you predicting a Trump victory, or where did you guys ultimately settle on uh, before Election Day? We predicted that all the states would be closer than the polls were saying. Right. Um, we and which we they were predicted, and uh, yeah, we we had the uh, number one poll in five of the states. We had the best one in Florida, uh, the most accurate one in Wisconsin, the most accurate one in Ohio, the most accurate one in Texas, and the most accurate one in North Carolina, and the North Carolina Senate, and the Arizona Senate. Now. We we did we did believe that he would win um, in Georgia, uh, and as you saw, eleven thousand votes, uh, and we did believe he would edge out in Arizona, and so we said it from the very beginning. We thought it was an extremely tight race, going to come down to the mid two seventies, and it could go either way, but we did expect Trump to have the edge on that, and um, but our error rate, our average error rate was under three and all the other major polling companies that polled the, the other races weren't all just over three. Most of them were over four. So we had a better error rate than anybody else. Our average error rate for the past uh, six years is better than all of them. And um, even Nate Silver went, took us from a C to an A in 2020. Wow. So, and then it, if you probably remember 2021, we were two tenths of a point from exactly perfect in Virginia. Amazing. And 1.3 uh, away from New Jersey, and no one was close to New Jersey. 
So let's take it to a quick commercial break. We're with Robert Cahalli, chief pollster of the Trafalgar Group, who, for, for what my money is worth, is by far the most reputable pollster in America these days. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. So I want to transition soon to the lay of the land here as we approach the 2022 midterms. But just one more higher level macro question that I just feel like I have to ask you is why have your rivals, why has the rest of the industry not adjusted their processes, their models, their algorithms, any of that? Like it, it, it seems like the, the industry now and the New York Times actually very recently just ran an article on this. They basically said like there's glaring red signs in all these states where the polls systemically undercounted Republican support the past two to three cycles. It seems like we're seeing the same thing over and over again. You know, it's like the old Yogi Berra quote. I mean, it's deja vu all over again, isn't it? Well, part of it is they can't let go. They, they are stuck believing you do it a certain way. You do it a certain way. It, it, it kind of reminds you of a math teacher who says, the only way you can do this is you, you have to show me your work and you have to do it exactly the way people have always done it. And if some kid says, well, I can get the right answer more accurately, faster, and not do it the way that you train me to do it, but a way that I figured out. And they're stuck. They are literally stuck in their model, just like there were people who do political television commercials who wouldn't let go of um, they wouldn't let go of film for years, even though digital was cheaper. And they just wouldn't let it go because that way you do film. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm sure most of these pollsters still are holding on to that VHS. And they're, they're just they're just not willing to go streaming. Uh, they're not even willing to let go of the CDs. But they, they got to let it go. It's over. It doesn't work the way that you've been trained to do it. I'm sorry that your training is useless now, but it is. Um, this nonsense of asking 30 or 40 questions when you're trying to measure the electorate, that isn't real because you don't get average people. You get people who care too much about politics. And you can tell yourself, you can have all your little meetings and all your little conferences and give yourself awards. But the fact is, you can't accept that you have a broken model. You need to ask fewer questions, which make, means you have to charge less. Um, you cannot rely on just live calls. You need to move bigger sample sizes. You can't be selling people this nonsense of 500 or 700 people per state. And you, you've just got to recognize people live differently. Uh, one, one of the major television networks has a polling firm that does all live calls. That's all they do is live calls. Now I have a simple question. I won't say their name, but how many millennials and Gen Z's do you know that are normal who would answer the phone from a number they don't recognize and then speak 
<laughs> and answer 35 questions. I don't know one in America like that. So who are they calling? Where are they getting a sample size? Like, that's not even reality if you think you're talking to that age group and you're not giving them where to participate via text. That, that's just pseudoscience. That's not even close to real. But and I know it makes you feel good because it's the way you do it and we're all live call. Live calls have their place and I like them too. But it's got to be a mix. People respond in a different way and you have to give, you have to let people take the poll in the way that this convenient for them. If you want, if you want to get a diverse group of people to take your poll, then you need to give, recognize, just like we're not having to learn that, recognize in the education system, everybody learns differently, or everybody participates in providing their public opinions in different ways. So we give them lots of ways, whether it's online, digital, um, they can they can come. They can they can send an e- They can do an email. They can do a text. Uh, they can take it with live calling. Take it with automated call. Ton of different methods, and whatever suits people. We don't believe in online panels because I think the only thing worse than what they're doing now is an online panel. Because, and I'm not trying to insult anybody, but how weird do you have to be to be on an online panel and take polls? <laughs> Who's got time for that? Tell me a normal person who goes, well, you know, I got to pick up the kids and go to, go, go to baseball practice. And we got to run by the gym. Oh, and I have to take those online polls. Right. Nobody thinks like that. Right. You know, I, so, I, I, again, I'm, ha- I'm happy that you mentioned like the, like the Gen Z millennial thing in particular. I mean, I feel like a shameless millennial myself, but I, I as like a pretty hard rule, do not pick up the phone when I get an incoming call from a, no. from a number that I do not recognize. So, you know, if, if you're a listener of this podcast and you somehow come across my cell number and I don't know you, then don't call me blind without first texting because I'm probably not going to pick up. Um, but That's exactly right. And so, and so, but the point is they, these guys, and there's a reason I jokingly call them the Pony Express pollsters. They are so set in the way that whatever that little group, the American Association of Public Opinion or whatever nonsense it's called, there's a way that you do it, and you have to do it that way. And it doesn't matter if you're wrong, you did it the right way. Just like, shut up. That's stupid. It doesn't work. And, 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 you, know, you, you, and you keep with this, oh, well, we, we didn't poll for education. Well, first of all, people lie about their education. If you've ever looked at an enhanced voter file that has real education level and then what people tell you they always bump it up a little bit a guy who did a little bit of college until he graduated so i mean are you relying on what people say and people's party affiliation when you ask them is usually different than what it is they'll tell you they're independent and all they do is vote in republican primaries or they'll tell you yeah i'm a big republican but they happen to live in a little in a little small town where if they want to vote sheriff they had vote in the democrat primary so they, they have their models the way things have to be. They burn half their questionnaire asking demographic questions that they can find another way. And they just and they don't get to the meat of it. People, the number one question we get is, how long is this going to take? And if you can't come back with it's four questions, it's five. You'll be on the phone less than three minutes. Totally. 
No, totally. I, 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 I think I think that's exactly right. And it, it really just it speaks ill of the industry that they have just apparently, uh, you know, as you're saying, they have just simply have not accommodated themselves to the reality of how people conduct business in this very like electronic Internet, digital communication centric age. Oh, and it, it's just so sad. It, I had a candidate send me a poll. Just that's more I thought of it the other day. I looked at it and I looked down the cross tabs and the no, it, it said 50 percent, five zero percent of the people participated in the poll had a college degree or a graduate degree or a postgraduate professional degree. 50 percent. There ain't a state in America where the general election no, turned out look like that. But what that is, that's very representative of the kind of people who would take a 42 question poll. Right. So uh, because we're starting to run a little short on time here, Robert, I do want to transition to what we're seeing before us in the 2022 midterm. So, you know, it seems to me, and this is the New York Times article that I alluded to just a few minutes ago, it seems to me like we really are potentially heading for the same thing. And, you know, you know, just for the listener's benefit, the the reason that you and I actually first connected is I was, I was on Fox Business fairly recently with Maria Bartiromo basically saying that on air. And then then, then you messaged me and said, you're right. And that's how you and I connected. So I, I know that I know that you agree with that. But what talk us through what specifically you're seeing, especially at the at the level of the U.S. Senate. Are there any races that stand out to you that you think that the that the polling consensus is just totally botching right now? I actually think a lot of it's moved even since you did that interview. A month ago, we were talking about Warnock beating Herschel Walker in double digits. Now, and we put out a poll show, uh, Herschel Walker up by 0.8. Emerson puts out one, shows him up by 2%. And Inside Advantage shows him up by 3 So the most recent three polls, and frankly, the most three credible polls, show Walker not only not losing double digits, but winning. A month ago, Oz was being written off as losing in double digits. Our poll shows him down, what, four. Emerson showed him down four. And Tesquahanna then came out and showed him down five. So now, um, what seemed like out of the mainstream shows Oz much more competitive. Uh, there was nonsense that, uh, that J.D. Vance was losing. And there's three polls, all that have Vance with a consistent lead, uh, after we showed it. And then, you know, even Black Masters has been, quote unquote, written off. Uh, we showed him down four. Insider Vantage showed him down six. And the new Emerson sh- shows him down two. So, you know, that average is down to exactly what we said to four. That is a hugely different picture of the four most competitive U.S. Senate races that anybody thought would be a month ago. Right. So I think what we were thinking was happening was, People buy into this nonsense of the generic ballot. Now, we all have to do these things, just like you do the presidential horse race uh, for uh, as if it's a popular vote. But it doesn't matter, you know, because the Republican can lose the popular vote by 3% and win an electoral landslide. And frankly, the Republicans can lose the generic ballot by 1% and get a 20-seat margin. So people are setting their doomer or cheer mechanism based on generic ballot, which doesn't really mean much of anything. What you should be watching is the Biden approval. Yeah, and there's some left-wing groups that are trying to make it look better, but polling groups, but the fact is it's dismal. These guys all got to run with Biden, and in these states, and I said this early on, even when these guys were down, the people who are saying undecided, 
in 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 Pennsylvania more often than not have a very low approval rating of Biden. If you if you strongly disapprove of Biden handling his job, you ain't voting for Fetterman. <laughs> right. It's just common sense. <laughs> I mean, like when did the polling industry just lose any sense of sense of common sense exactly exactly and that's remember i talked about there's kind of people that are in it because they like politics and the study of people and they like the study of numbers we got a lot of geeking going on but not a lot of understanding of human nature going on right so uh, let's kind of then get a little more in the weeds in our remain time here as far as u.s senate's concerned because i kind of assume that we all think the republicans are still in very good position to retake the U.S. House. So the real kind of dividing line is what people are thinking about the Senate. And you see kind of Nate Silver of the New York Times, their needles kind of moving back and forth. A lot of people think it's basically close to a toss up. I I, I would think that you think that Republicans are probably still pretty strongly favored to retake the Senate. So I'd be curious if, if you have if you have what like an actual number in mind as far as t- I, I had to give my number yesterday, 58 percent chance. Okay, and, going up. and how many seats do you think Republicans will take, if you had to guess? Oh, that's just taking the majority. Uh, right now, I'd tell you two. Okay, and where are those, two, where, where, where are those, where are those seats coming from, those two? Those two are going to come from, get ready, it's going to be fun. They're going to come from either Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, or hold on to your hat, Washington State, wow. or New Hampshire, and the Republicans if they don't straighten out, might lose one of their incumbents in Wisconsin. Oh, you think Ron Johnson's in trouble in Wisconsin? I think incumbents are having a hard time this year, and they talk about the Republicans having a difficult map, but what the Republicans, yes, they have a lot of seats to defend, but they are not running as many incumbents as people think because Alabama, Pennsylvania, and Ohio are not incumbents running for re-election, although they're Republican seats. Um, I think it's a rough year for incumbents. He hasn't raised any money. Uh, and what we hear polling Wisconsin is the same thing we heard when we were polling uh, Wyoming. They said Liz Cheney is all worried about Trump and January 6th and ain't worried about Wyoming. Ron Johnson is all worried about Hunter's laptop and ain't worried about Wisconsin. That's what we keep hearing. So, You know, I think Ron Johnson needs to spend a little more time talking about a state that's got plenty of problems. Wow. I mean, it's ground zero for a lot of nonsense that's going on and a lot of uh, real, you know, I mean, whether it's crashing into Christmas parades or Rittenhouse trial or Kenosha. I mean, like there's a lot going on in Wisconsin. There's plenty to do at home. Uh, And I think that one's going to be tough. I think that's one. If we lose an income... I feel like if, if you see, if we have a year where the Republicans are going to lose an incumbent, I think that will be the one. I'm not saying he's going to, right? because I think that they are going to come in and save him. But if there was one that would lose. Um, but uh, I, I think there's a good chance that, you know, the, the Republicans hold on to the ones they have. And um, they keep your eyes for a little surprises like uh, Colorado, like uh, New Hampshire and uh like Washington State, and I would put uh, Nevada on a not even on that tier, but a more likely. So you think you think that Adam Laxalt is more likely than not to to defeat Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada? I think it's a very good chance. I think Laxalt can win with by enough margin to accommodate 
whatever happens in Nevada. Well, I hope you, I, I hope you're right. I've gotten to know uh, Adam Laxalt a little bit. I think very highly of him. I think he'd be a terrific U.S. senator. And, and just to clarify on the Ohio race, you think that you think that J.D. Vance is pretty safe right now in that in that race? Yes, I've, I've never thought J.D. Vance had a real problem. I really don't think that uh, Bud has a problem in, in, in uh, North, North Carolina. Carolina. Okay, so how, how about Arizona? That's a seat. That's a, and maybe, maybe, maybe we'll close on this note. Arizona is a seat that I that I spent a lot of time talking about on this show a couple of weeks ago. There's just a lot going on out there. Blake Masters, another candidate who I've gone to know and think very highly of. Mark Kelly has this tremendous fundraising advantage. Some people, even on the right, have been calling on voters there to not vote for Blake, which I think is just completely asinine. Well, and what you've seen is you've seen some of the establishment because Blake was so strongly saying he wouldn't back McConnell and all them pull away. And, you know, all I had to say is if you're a Republican and you pull away from a guy, that's up to you and history will judge whether you should or shouldn't have done that. But that seat is more competitive. We got three polls in a row that show it's competitive. And frankly, masters benefits from Carrie Lake because she, people, people who don't care about politics have known her and she's been in their living room for 20 years on TV and they like her and it doesn't hurt to have a popular candidate on the other side running. And I think she will outperform him, but I think she will help him in that sense. And um, I, I, I just think when it's all said and done, Biden is so unpopular. The guy's got like a 90 or hundred percent voting record with Biden and, th- and I've said this on a couple of shows. I think running with Biden as president when you're running as a Democrat for Senate is like having termites in your house. Everything might look fine. You don't <laughs> want to talk about it. But before it's all said and done, the only thing that's going to matter is in termites in your house. Yeah, well, no, that's a really beautiful and quite evocative analogy that that, that we probably should end on. I, I guess when it comes to situations like Georgia, where Brian Kemp is probably going to win by a fairly wide margin, despite a competitive U.S. Senate race, and to a slightly lesser extent, but still somewhat similarly out in Arizona, where, as you're saying, it does seem like Carrie Lake is well positioned to uh, to succeed Doug Ducey in the governor's mansion. You know, I, I mean, how many split ticket voters between Kemp and Stacey Abrams in Georgia, <laughs> uh, you know, or the, the analog to that? Uh, voting for Mark Kelly. I would expect more. I would expect more split tickets in Arizona than Georgia. Um, just be, just the very nature of it, because it was a, because of the nature of the primary. I mean, Herschel did not win a nasty, nasty primary, and um, Masters did. Right. That's uh, right. And and also, Kemp is running a much better campaign. I mean, like Stacey Abrams can't, I mean, it's, it's almost like those of us who spent a lot of time in Georgia and work here, she's a genius. And like, we're just trying to figure out what her grand plan is. Cause it don't make no sense. You know, it's like we all respect that you're really smart and you're a heck of an organizer, but we can't understand what your plan is to win. And it, isn't like Stacey Abrams to not have a good plan. Right. And so it's, it's almost like everybody's just kind of looking around going. So at what point is like Stacey going to make Savannah fall in the ocean and blame it on Kim? I mean, like Stacey has to plan here, right? I mean, it's just like, you know, she's too smart to just lose. We'll see what happens. I mean, I, I, 
I, I guess I'm a little more skeptical that she has a plan and that it's possible she just doesn't have a plan to be honest with you but unfortunately robert we're we're short on time on, on the show i'm gonna have to wrap it right here but this is really insightful i know the listeners benefited greatly from it so thank you so much for joining us this week oh fun to do man fun to do Thanks again to Robert Cahaley for stopping by. If you're not already doing so, I would strongly encourage you to check out his work and more generally the work of his excellent polling outfit, the Trafal Group, as I believe I mentioned. They are really the only pollster these days who I actually trust. And when Robert says something that might initially shock the conscience about Tiffany Smiley potentially having a shot in that Washington state Senate race in the Pacific Northwest, when he says that Ron Johnson may be in trouble, which is something that you wouldn't necessarily expect Robert Cahalley of Trafalgar to say, you want to pay attention to that. So he, he really has been more accurate than any pollster in the entire polling industry. That entire industry, of course, is a total crap show right now, but he has truly stood out over the past three cycles at least, and I certainly expect that he's going to continue to stand out this cycle as well. And I, 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 do, I do share his optimism. I, I, I fundamentally do share his optimism when you're looking across the board there. I tend to like the Republican Party's chances in a lot of these states that we were talking about just now. But I also want to encourage you here, if you've not already done so, please go on Apple Podcasts to The Josh Hammer Show. Go ahead and leave us a five-star review. Please tell us what you think in the comments there. The point here, guys, is if you like what we're talking about here, if you like this podcast, which is conscientiously, deliberately a vehicle for the new right and the future orientation of conservatism and the Republican Party America. If you like what we're talking about, if you like the guests that we've brought on, if you're excited about the amazing future guests that we are going to bring on, then your comments really, really do help us because what that does, we got to play the game like everyone else does. Those algorithms are going to get us broader reach. You're going to, we're going to get more listeners. We'll get boosted higher up the rankings and people outside of our normal listener audience are going to see the podcast. So if you like what you hear, then please go ahead and give us five stars. Go ahead and leave us a review. We would be really, really appreciative. Until next week, I'm Josh Hammer.